Morning, John. Morning. It'd be a good one, too, if the barista had gotten our coffee order right. You keep bringing her up like this every day. I'll have to assume you're dating her. Just take the coffee, Abby. The new guy starts today? You're doing that thing again. What thing? That thing you do when you're nervous. You start asking questions you already know the answer to. So, today's the day. You think? He's in the other room. Well, what do we know about him? He's a podcast comedy sketch writer, so what do you think? He's not exactly a go-getter. You think? I could buy his house four times and turn it in my ping-pong room. Don't get cute with me. So you ready to meet him or what? No. No? No. Abby, if we meet this guy right now, we're just going to end up liking him. And then, inevitably, we'll have to fire him. (sighs) This isn't happening. We should have just brought back Jessica Chastain. Listening to her perform a podcast sketch about Michael Cera as Spider-Man is like watching Shakespeare the way it was meant to be performed. Will you just meet the guy? Abby, we're not going to meet this broke, desperate, loser podcaster based out of Pennsylvania. He's right behind me, isn't he? Hi, Will. Uh, hi. Sorry, the door was open. I could hear every word you two were saying. Right. Can we help you? I'm Will, the new commie sketch writer you hired. Sorry, for a second I confused you with someone around here with a financially aspirational job description. Huh. I'm not going to like you very much, am I? Don't be ridiculous. Everyone likes me. Ignore him, Will. He's just terrified somebody else on this podcast might have more talent than him. You bet your ass. Well, okay, look. For the first comedy sketch I had in mind, I was trying to think of uh, making fun of writer and director Aaron Sorkin. Like a Sorkin parody? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. No. No. No? No. You come in here pitching your first sketch to us, and of all the material you pick, it's another tired, predictable satire of Aaron Sorkin tropes. It's lazy, it's played out, and you know it, too. Look, go with the sketch, don't go with the sketch. It's up to you. But I took this job because I believe I can make a difference on this film review podcast. You think you're special? I've seen people like you come in here too many times to count. Hey, I'm not other people. What do you want from us, Will? The same thing your listeners want. Comedy supporting movies they're actually watching. Or did you forget that from way up on your dark tower? Just make your point already. Fire me. Or shut the hell up. Well, there goes another one of your bright ideas. That's the cost of doing business. I think he was one Bible verse away from saying the streets of heaven are crowded with Joe Rogan experiences. This isn't happening. What, you think we should chase him down, profess our love for his commitment to the tropes most traveled? Here. What's this? A contract approving Will Ashton's idea to do an Aaron Sorkin comedy sketch to open the next episode of Cinemaholics. Are you serious? I'd rather let my father, who's been having an affair with a woman in Santa Monica for 28 years, write comedy sketches for Cinemaholics. Just sign the darn thing so you can go home. Me go home? What about you? I go home when you go home. That's what makes you happy, isn't it? When the rest of us are just as miserable and self-loathing as you? Abby, the only thing you ever had to do to make me happy was go home before me at the end of the day so I could hold it against you the next morning using a brief but clearly premeditated series of quips distracting me from the monotony of doing a film review podcast while all the major films people actually care about are being delayed or unceremoniously dumped on fragmented streaming services. Hey, it's me again. My other idea was just to record this entire conversation and publish it since we're out of time. I doubt anyone will notice. Is he... A genius? Guess we're about to find out.
welcome once again to Cinemaholics from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm John Negroni, box office columnist for Adam Tickets and editor-in-chief of Cinemaholics.com. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics. It's Will Ashton. Hello. From Kansas City, she's the film editor for The Pitch, with bylines from Slash Film to Crooked Marquee and Your Hearts. It's Abby Olchessi. Hello. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com. You'll also get written reviews there as well and other podcasts for you to enjoy. If you'd like to write into the show, send us some honest feedback, please email us, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we want to invite you to become one of our monthly patrons. We love our patrons. It's pretty well known at this point. Go to patreon.com slash cinemaholics to find out how you can support the show, where you can get exclusive merch and other fun stuff like our bonus patron exclusive podcasts, which we will talk a little bit more about new episodes of that in Off Topics. So starting with Off Topics, we have an extra milestone out. Uh, Sam Noland invited on... Uh, Emily Kubin-Kanek, one of our favorite cinemaholics of all time, to talk about two huge films. First one is Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush, which celebrated its anniversary, coming out in 1925. If I'm doing my math, that's 95 years. And then also Sunset Boulevard, uh, largely considered Billy Wilder's masterpiece. That's the 1950 film, and uh, I believe Billy Wilder had multiple masterpieces, but Sunset Boulevard is definitely one of the most well-known, and it is a brilliant film. Made me want to rewatch that one after listening to two of them talk about it. We also have a new episode of Game Over, Man. It's episode three. This is the bonus podcast just for our patrons, where Sam Nolan and Adonis Gonzalez talk about every Alien and Predator movie in order. So this week, they talked about Predator, which I believe came out in 1987, 1986, somewhere, somewhere in the mid-80s. And so that episode is out for our Patreon patrons. You can check that out right now. Highly recommend you do. Elsewhere on the site, we do have a written review for a film we're not talking about today, and that's Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting, which just came out on Netflix. Abby, did you hear about this film? Do you know what's going on with this one? I just skipped it. I didn't feel like it. Um, I don't think I have seen much about it, but I've seen, I think, at least a poster and maybe part of a trailer. So I'm I'm kind of vaguely intrigued. I might go and check out the, the review on the site to find out more about it. Yeah, Lizzie Combs did our review for this one. She wasn't the biggest fan, but she she kind of compared it to like it's like the candy corn of Halloween movies, which means some people are probably going to like it much to the confusion of others. And uh, she also called it like a, if Disney or if Netflix did a Disney Channel original movie, this is kind of the result of that and uh, i don't know will it sounds it just doesn't seem like something that's up your jam but you did have a review go up this past week for mm-hmm. the kid detective which is something we're going to be reviewing later in this episode but uh yeah that review's out now if you want to plug it yeah i mean i don't know what else is there to say um I wrote didn't a realize, review. <laughs> yeah no i mean i didn't realize this was coming out this weekend in wide release i saw it at tiff and uh, i'll share my thoughts in just a little bit but if you're too anxious to hear what I have to say and maybe an hour's time you can pause this episode and read my thoughts and then come back and uh, listen to what I have to say as well. Well as always you know I, I always forget to say this because a lot of our listeners are on Spotify which it's it's not super obvious on Spotify that we do have timestamps. So if you see an episode and you want to just maybe listen to one review over the other, we, of course, want you to listen to the whole show, but we understand your time is extremely valuable. You can go to the timestamps, and we are pretty precise with it, so you can get right into the review you're the most curious about. 
That said, we'll check us in on the Welcome to the Blumhouse films that have been hitting Amazon Prime. These are some new horror flicks, sort of thrillers mm-hmm. too, that are coming out throughout October. You talked about one of, or two of them last week, one more depth, and it sounds like you've seen a few more. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say most of these end up being thrillers for the most part. But yeah, this is the Amazon Prime series, like you said, that they use to basically either promote smaller releases that would have come out, I guess, in theaters around this time or films that were made exclusively through Prime for this uh, series. And I was hoping at least one of them would uh, appeal to me, but ultimately I was kind of mixed and negative on almost all of them. And uh, as you mentioned, the first one that I saw and the first one that came out was The Lie, which is the one that was starring uh, Joey King and then Pierce Arsgaard. That's probably the most high profile one based on the stars involved. And uh, ultimately, that's unfortunately the weakest one of the four, which is a shame because I feel like that's the one that might get the most uh, attention. But in any case, um, there's also Black Box, which I talked about briefly last week. That is the film with um, uh, what's the guy from uh, the Netflix film Uncooked? Well, I know one person from Black Box is uh, Christopher Abbott, right? I don't know about Uncooked. Christopher Abbott? Yeah. Isn't he in Black Box? Uh, not that I recall unless I'm blanking out on it, but I know, um, uh, what's your name is also in it. I, I'm terrible with names, but I don't believe Christopher Abbott was in it. I feel like I remember if he was, but, um, in any case, yeah, that one, I described it last week as, uh, basically what if you took the internal sunshine memory machine and took it to the sunken place? And uh, I think that one, while it does fall apart towards the end, I think that one has enough intriguing ideas to make it a pretty interesting uh, short film. As far as making it a feature film, I don't think it quite carries its weight, but I think there's enough here, particularly with the acting and then also some of the horror imagery that is present throughout it. I, I, think, th- I do think there is something here that maybe if it was like developed a little bit more, or maybe if they either restrained it some respects or added upon it they could made something really interesting yeah the sands it's it's perfectly fine i guess it's just not i think up to where it could be which makes it a bit frustrating disappointing in the long run and that's basically where i stand with nocturno or nocturne as uh the one with um sydney sweeney that also came out this week before you talk about nocturne i did look it up to fact check and you were sorry i was thinking of something else with chris rabbit i apologize but you were talking oh, about black Mamadou bear Afi. you were thinking yeah Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, this, this is a guy. Yeah, he was on. He was in um, Uncorked, not in Uncorked. OK. And uh, he was also in a unicorn store. Hmm. OK. Um. Yeah. But I think you're thinking of Black Bear, which is the um, Aubrey Plaza film that's coming out later this year. It was at Sundance, if I remember correctly. I think that's what you're getting. Probably. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, but Nocturne, but Nocturne. Is a, yeah, Nocturne is the one with Sydney Sweeney, best known for uh, Euphoria, as well as uh, she was in Big Time Adolescence, which we reviewed a few weeks ago or a few months ago now. Um, yeah, that one, it's very similar to other like young artists trying to be great films like, I guess, Whiplash and uh, let's see, Black Swan, I think is probably the one that's going to get compared to the most uh, in films of that vein where an artist who is clearly talented but not quite up to uh, greatness is pushed to those means. And uh, in doing so, there are some devastating and dire and potentially lethal consequences that uh, befall her. And I think of the four, this is probably the best, but I just feel like it's still kind of in this middle zone where it just doesn't quite stand out compared to films I think it's going to be compared to, which is unfortunate because those films I think are about are basically great films about people striving for greatness in art. And this is a film about striving for greatness in art that ends up being fairly mediocre, which is uh, very unfortunate, but it also kind of puts itself in that box. Uh, 
but as it stands, I think it's fine. Like, I think this is the one that if I were to watch any of these again, this would probably be the one because I think it's the most confident and the one that's probably the most assured as far as the filmmaking is concerned, as well as the one that's probably the most cinematic of the four because the other three don't really have as much going uh, for them visually. But uh, as it stands, just kind of a shrug ultimately as well. And then there's Evil Eye, which is the one with um, the girl from Save Ourselves, which I know you're, you also liked her work in uh, The Good Place and Glow. If I remember correctly, I don't know her name off the top of my head, though. I don't think she was in The Good Place, but yeah, she's she in not? Glow. Okay. Yeah, Sunita Mani. Yeah, it's her film. Uh, each of these have like at least one prominent star. And uh, that one, unfortunately, is not great, which is a shame because it has some interesting ideas about heritage and identity that I think are very intriguing. And especially for Blumhouse, which is a company that uh, over the years has been, you know, primarily white filmmakers telling films about white people. They traditionally not really uh, been good about uh, inclusion, diversity. So it's nice that some of these films have been uh, including been more inclusive in that respect. But as it stands, I don't think this one really does. uh, It's, I guess, premise justice because it ultimately kind of falls into this uh, fairly overblown and melodramatic story that that plays out in a fairly dull and predictable fashion, which is a. frustrating and disappointing because like i said it felt like there was something here that could have been more worthwhile and it didn't live up to that potential and i feel like that's just my general thoughts about the blumhouse series uh unfortunately which i do think that's a cool idea i think they should explore that more i just feel like this first run was a fairly middling and uh ultimately disappointing effort but i think this idea is really interesting it it does bring notice and a good platform to a lot of these smaller indie films and so i do hope they continue doing it but as far as the next ones, I hope they're a lot better than these four. Uh, again, I have to, I have to do another correction on myself. So she was, she was in three episodes of The Good Place, but it was okay. the first season. It was so long ago, I totally forgot. So it was like before I saw Glow, which is what kind of put her more on my radar. Mm-hmm. I do remember her also from Mr. Robot, but again, okay. that was like around the same amount of time, and I hadn't really put the face of the name and all of that. She was also um, in uh, uh, Search Party. Uh, as well so but a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of films in tv at this point she's her profile yeah. has definitely exploded in like the last like five years and i'll say that uh even though she's in primarily comedies this is probably the most dramatic of the four so don't go in expecting some uh, laughs from that one <laughs> but um yeah, this isn't wine country <laughs> yeah just i uh, just to clarify in case there's any confusion there but yeah unfortunately wasn't big fan of any of these but you know i have seen some people really digging nocturne so i think that one might break through and find an audience, which is nice because, like I said, it's probably the best of the four, but unfortunately, I found the recipe fairly disappointing. So that's my thoughts on those. All right, and we have another sort of horror collection here. Abby Olchesty, you've been checking out the Mortuary collection, which is on Shutter. So what is that, and uh, why should people maybe be interested, especially if they already have a Shutter account? Um, I think that the Mortuary collection is probably one of the stronger releases that uh, Shudder has put out uh, on its exclusive platform, I think, since it uh, since it started up. Uh, it is a horror anthology movie that is kind of in the style of uh, Creepshow or The Crypt Keeper or like any of those older amicus anthology movies from uh, the 1970s. There's a lot of that running through it, too. Um, and it kind of uses as the framework a uh, a mortuary uh hence the name uh where the uh the caretaker Montgomery Dark who's played by uh Clancy Brown the legendary character actor who you've seen in or heard in probably just about everything 
Um, he's a he's a pretty prolific actor. Um, and he actually gets to be in kind of a starring role this time, which is rare for him. So it's it's fun to see him kind of own the screen like this. He is the the person who runs the mortuary, and he is um, kind of training up a uh, a young woman named Sam who has come because she saw a help wanted sign out front. So he's telling all of these stories as kind of a way to introduce her into the profession. Like these are the souls, the stories of souls of people who have been through the mortuary. Um, so there are, I think, a total of four stories throughout the movie, um, kind of varying in length. And they all have sort of that similar kind of crypt keeper structure where there's uh, there's kind of a weird comedic setup and a weird ironic payoff that has some kind of a moral lesson to it. Um, there's also a lot of interest in storytelling. Um, I think the, it's, it's a really self-referential movie, which I think is really funny. There are some, some stories that I didn't care for as much as others, but funnily enough, like the movie recognizes almost when some of those stories might not be as strong and criticizes them. Um, so I like that it has a certain level of self-awareness too, but most of all, the, uh, the production design on this is just really, really impressive. This was a, a low budget independent movie. Um, but the way that it looks and the way that it feels is just very rich. Uh, the, the mortuary itself has all of these great, uh, set details and there's all kinds of great uh, costumes and music. The atmosphere is very consistent. Um, so uh, Ryan Spindell is the uh, the writer and director of this movie. And I feel like it is a really good kind of entry into um, into feature filmmaking for him. I think it, it shows that he's got a really strong eye and a really strong set of uh, of influences in terms of like what he actually wants his movies to do. Um, so yeah, I think this is, this is one that's worth checking out on Shudder. It gives you really good Halloween vibes. And I feel like, uh, Ryan Spindell is going to be somebody that we want to pay attention to in the coming years in terms of, uh, indie filmmaking and indie horror. I think he's, he's got a real talent. That is the Mortuary Collection. It's now on Shudder. And I have to say 2020 for me, at least has really solidified Shudder as just one of the like essential streaming services. I mean, it's a no brainer if you are a fan of horror, but Cinemaholics in general have so many reasons to check out the exclusives on Shudder. And this just sounds like yet another fantastic reason <laughs> or another fantastic exclusive to enjoy from, especially this month. So hopefully a lot of our listeners will be able to check that out. And uh, Will, I think, uh, are you planning to see it as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, talking to Abby about it a little bit before and I told her it was of note. And yeah, it seems like something I'll check out. I have a few more days ahead for my Halloween marathon. So this is easy one I could fit into there. And I was also just going to mention with Shudder that one thing I do really like about them as far as the streaming service is that they're one of the few that actually puts out physical mediums or physical copies of their movies in addition to streaming them in a fairly consistent fashion. So uh, kudos for them for that. That's right. I think they just put out uh, a really nice Blu-ray of uh, Monstrum. I think I saw that coming across Twitter, which is another one that's kind of a fun uh, exclusive of theirs to check out. All right. Definitely. We all recommend Shudder. Hopefully a lot of our listeners have it as well and are enjoying it right now. All right. For listener voicemails, we just sent out a new question and we're going to do things a little bit differently. So people have a little bit more notice and they don't have to keep checking the app. Got some got some feedback on, in the emails that people were like, we want to leave a voicemail, but we don't know when the, the they're coming out. So we're going to announce the, what the question is this week. And then once you've listened to this episode, you can have a chance to go on the Swell app and leave your voicemail for us. So our question this week is, what are movies you've watched with your partner's family. This question was sort of inspired by the little story I told last week about how I watched Rocky Horror Picture Show 
with my uh, college girlfriend's family like, years and years ago. And I had a little bit of a conversation with this off the air about, you know, movies that you you pick to see, like, the, you know, trying to avoid, like, uncomfortable situations. So we want to hear what you listeners have to say about that. All you have to do is download the Swell app. Uh, you can find a link to the show notes and check out that app and leave your voicemail. Super easy. You can do it right from your phone. You don't need equipment or anything like that. It is hopefully going to be very seamless and looking forward to hearing your responses and playing it on the air on next week's show. But all right, let's get started with our first featured review of the week. Let's talk about the trial of the Chicago 7. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. Well, they're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Holy s***. <laughs> you all right? No words until I saw that. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freund, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. <laughs> my trial's begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected. Jurors 6 and 11, they're with us. Juror number 6 and juror number 11, you're dismissed from this jury. Can you tell us why? Because this is my courtroom. We've dealt with jury tampering, wiretapping, a defendant that was literally gagged. Get your hands off me! You're the first to suggest that I have discriminated against a black man. Then let the record show that I'm the second. So the trial of the Chicago 7 is a kind of, uh, based on real historical events, it's a legal drama. It was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. This is, I believe, his second film directing after Molly's Game, which I think Will and I, you and I talked about that film a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. And the film itself follows the story of the Chicago 7 in the late 1960s. This was a group of anti-Vietnam War protesters who were kind of part of different groups representing like different wings of the anti-war movement you had sort of the centrists uh, represented mainly here by eddie redmayne you had the more hippie movement represented here by sasha baron cohen and jeremy strong and then you had like the sort of like totally unrelated but brought in for political reasons you had the black panthers uh you had one black panther bobby seal uh who is played here by yaya abdul mateen the second and the film follows the very beginning. We see this sort of like cross cutting of scenes, getting to know these characters, and they're all getting ready for this major protest. They're going to be crossing state lines and going to Chicago, Illinois, to protest the 1968 Democratic National Convention because they believe that the candidate the delegates are going to pick, I believe it was Hubert Humphreys, is going to be a more pro war kind of president in the style of LBJ. And for that reason, they go to protests and the mayor of Chicago sets up a lot of obstacles for them. We don't actually see in the beginning of the film what happens. Instead, the film cuts to the future uh, or the present day of the film where we have Joseph Gordon-Levitt 
being hired by the new attorney general because that's right. Richard Nixon has won the 1968 election and is now president. And the Department of Justice, sort of in a political personal move, they decide that they're going to prosecute and indict some of these protesters for conspiracy, that they conspired together to come to Chicago to incite violence against the police. And this film follows the trial that goes from there. I forgot to mention we have John Carroll Lynch as another member of the Chicago 7 who is more of a conscientious objector. And then the judge here, a very charismatic, villainous judge played by Frank Langella. Fun to see him, of course, after playing Richard Nixon in the wonderful film Frost Nixon. And then we have a few other surprise uh, cameos as well. I do have to mention Mark Rylance plays the lead prosecutor or the lead defendant lawyer for the Chicago 7 uh, counselor and uh, probably my favorite performance in the film. And then I won't spoil who shows up later to play the former attorney general. It is a fun little surprise I didn't see coming. I you, you both might have if you saw the cast list, but uh, I didn't. Now, this film was supposed to be directed by Steven Spielberg and still written by Aaron Sorkin back in 2007. It still has Sasha Baron Cohen attached, but then it had Philip Seymour Hoffman to play the counselor role. It also had Will Smith to play Bobby Seale, or at least there were rumors to that effect. Uh, because of the writer's strike around that time, this film sort of got shelved and it is now just being released by Aaron Sorkins, uh, who is directing this time. And it's now on Netflix. It premiered at TIFF a few weeks ago. So there's already been a lot of critical reaction. And the reviews I'm seeing are a bit all over the place. A lot of people really love this film. Some people are really in the middle. And then other people are saying this is this year's Green Book. Where do you stand on the trial of the Chicago 7, Abby? And do you swear to tell the truth? So help you God. I do. I've got my hand on a Bible right now. Um, just kidding. But uh, I think I probably fall somewhere in the middle. Um, I wouldn't say that this is this year's green book. It's definitely not that egregious. Um, I do think that there are some issues with it that we can get into. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it, for better or worse, it's an Aaron Sorkin movie. And so I feel like that kind of comes with all of the things that people like about his writing, as well as a lot of the things that people have dinged him for in the past. Um, I feel like they all kind of apply. Um, I think the performances throughout are really strong. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen is really good as Abby Hoffman. Uh, he is uh, kind of surprisingly subtle. I know that uh, Hoffman was kind of a firebrand character and knowing how broad uh, Sasha Baron Cohen can go in his in his roles. I mean, we've all seen Borat. Um, he, he keeps it really reined in and I think it's a really interesting performance from him, very layered. Um, I think Jeremy Strong is really good as uh, Jerry Rubin, kind of perpetually stoned and kind of nerdy and sweet. He, he's kind of the movie's yeah. precious cinnamon role, which I like a lot. Um, and uh, I think Mark Rylance is probably, I think, the best out of all of them, just because he does what he does so well, kind of that super dry, understated, but like quietly the most intelligent person in the room. Um, and he's he's really fun to watch. Um, I do have some issues with the way that they present uh, Bobby Seale, uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen's character. I think uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen is really good in the film. I think especially right at the beginning, he kind of chews up that uh, Aaron Sorkin dialogue just as well as you would expect anybody to do. Um, he kind of has like that really charismatic rapid fire delivery that you want. Um, but it sometimes feels like the movie doesn't quite know what to do with him. Um, he kind of gets shuffled to the back a lot of the time. Um, although I think 
some of the the scenes in which he is just egregiously treated in the courtroom are are some of the movie's most dramatic moments. But it almost feels like, just in terms of his perspective, we don't see that much of it outside of the courtroom as we do all the other defendants. Um, and there's almost sort of a sigh of relief when he leaves the movie, as if like we don't have to have this kind of appendage story hanging on. We can go back to the the focus of what we all really came here to do, um, which I, I I get. It's kind of a hard thing to integrate into the rest of the film, um, but. I do think it kind of deserved a little more even-handed attention than it got. I know there's a challenge there, but I think there's a way that could have addressed it a little bit better. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to that because I I am very curious about that criticism. Not saying that I don't agree with it, but I do sort of fall into this struggle of like, well, is that really is that challenge really because they're limited by real life events? And, you know, because when he isn't in the courtroom, he is in jail and he doesn't have his lawyer. So there I don't know if there are like any scenes they could have done outside of it that would have made sense necessarily. So I struggle with that a little bit. I do want to come back to that and hear what you both have to say in a little more detail. But going to you, Will, what did what did you think of the Chicago seven? Can you handle this film's truth? Well, I guess truth to be fairly subjective here. Um, <laughs> sure. That's fine, because I think I mean, at the end of the day, I think Sorkin means entertain. Like, I don't think this is meant to be anywhere near like accurate as far as like historical relevance. I think it's just going for the emotional truth of the moment, which I think is arguable for many different reasons. But as far as uh, the approach, as far as just being a piece of entertainment, I think it succeeds as far as just being, you know, it's an enjoyable watch. I, I do think as a director, Sorkin remains fairly serviceable. Like he's just basically there to service his script. And uh, in that respect, I think he handles the material fine. I do wish it was someone like uh, Spielberg, I believe is the name you mentioned, because like I think he would give it a little bit more of like a wallop or something that would give it a little bit more pizzazz as far as uh, his directorial sense. It just feels kind of uh, a little flat at times, like sometimes visually a, a kinetic as far as like the opening monologue and like different things like that have a little bit of flair to him but for the most part his style just doesn't feel quite as heightened uh as a director as it does as a writer which kind of causes this a uh, bit of a tonal conflict i think throughout the film but i mean as far as just you know looking at this as a like netflix film that's available right now in 2020 i think it does its job i think in a way like it makes more sense to put this out on netflix right now as opposed to uh waiting to release this in uh say 2021 in theaters because i think this is a film you know obviously very relevant and uh very present for now and i think it makes sense to release this now even if it isn't going to be seen in a lot of theaters i think it did get a limited release but for the most part people are going to be watching this on netflix and i think it's fine i think in that respect it's probably maybe i guess middle of the road for sorkin because if i say like top tier sorkin is like the social network and then like bottom tier Sorkin is like the newsroom. This is like somewhere in between there where it's like it's playing to his strengths. It's also playing a lot to his weaknesses. But the material itself is sound. It does allow him to do a lot of his grandstanding in a way that does, you know, do what Sorkin does best, but does bring out a lot of those annoying tropes that are unfortunate and do, I think, drag the film down from being a like good to even great Sorkin film. But as a decent to pretty darn good one, I think it it stands out as a as a solid piece of two hour entertainment. 
Well, listening to both of you, I think we I think we all agree a lot on the positives, or at least I'm agreeing on a lot of the positives you both have put out. Like Abby, I think Mark Rylance is the best performance of the film, definitely rivaling Sasha Baron Cohen's wit and how he does his delivery and Jeremy Strong as well. But yeah, Rylance gets so many key moments here. And then also, yeah, Will, to what you're saying about how the film, yeah, it's serviceable. It's enjoyable. It kind of makes sense to see something like this on Netflix. I can definitely jibe with that. But yeah, getting into the big criticism I have of this film, which I do really like, I really enjoy this film. I think it's just sheer entertainment. I found myself really gripped by it, even though I can recognize a lot of the tropes, a lot of the the fact that it's not a very flashy film, even though I did think it was cinematic, well-directed in the sense that it's paced well, that it moves you through. And I never felt like it was a, a long watch. But the big, the big criticism I have is the schmaltz that ends the film. I think that it it's crucial that a film like this has an ending that really brings it all together. And some of that tonal clash that Will's talking about, I think that's best represented by how all of a sudden the film sort of becomes like an episode of the West Wing instead of the film we just watched. And it just didn't work on me, unfortunately. Not to mention the fact that it gives you a novel to read at the end. <laughs> As opposed yeah, to just depicting that as a, like, you know, because film's a visual medium and that just felt like such a writer decision to be like, hey, read 12 paragraphs before you leave. Like, just just show yeah. us that. <laughs> what, do, what do you think, Abby, of everything we've talked about so far? Are you agreeing, disagreeing? I, yeah, I think I, I would agree. And I think the ending, I I wasn't completely put off by it just because I feel like it it does kind of tend to match the... Uh, sort of prestige historical drama ending, like for, for better or worse, mostly for worse. Um, so it's not entirely unexpected. It is a little disappointing. Um, on the whole, I think given the movie's subject matter, and I did enjoy it, I think it is an enjoyable movie. Um, but given the subject matter and especially given its timing, given the fact that a lot of people, um, in kind of expert level places have been writing articles about the similarities between the, uh, the 68, uh, political climate and the 68 Chicago riots um, and the the similarities to what we've been seeing um, on the streets and uh, in, in our politics today, I feel like, and this is not, I mean, I don't think that Aaron Sorkin could have done a film like this, but I would like to see a film like this. I do think it requires a little more edge and a little more urgency than the movie uh, really displays. Um, but for what it is, I think it's pretty solid. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm not wild about the ending uh, and I'm not wild about the uh, the point where uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt gets to be kind of uh, a positively conflicted character and gets to stand up when Tom Hayden reads the names of the uh, deceased Vietnam veterans, because in reality, it turns out that character was a real jerk. So I don't I don't think he really needs to get uh, not not everybody needs to have a redemptive moment in that movie. I think there's a little more room for judgment than he gives. Yeah, I agree with you. I do find it tricky that, you know, you do want characters in these films to feel human, to not feel like one dimensional mustache twirling villains. I think that was the idea behind this character, the the prosecutor. But yeah, there's something about the way Levitt plays the character that I, I do think he is one of the weaker performances, not because he's bad at acting, which would obviously be false, but I just think the combination of the performance he's doing and the writing, just I don't think it quite hit a very difficult 
uh, idea behind his character that I think Sorkin was intending. And I think you can sort of see where Sorkin needs to improve as a film director and how he probably could have alleviated that by bringing that performance out of Levitt. I'm just speculating. Yeah, and I'd, I would definitely want to add to it. I've, I've heard some criticism with this film of just being like, this is another sort of like baby boomers can watch this and and feel like, wow, look look how look how much better things have gotten. And I think that that criticism, that's kind of the criticism that's being brought up when this is compared to Green Book, for example, which is like racism back then was bad and we've changed so many. And then I think that's where the height of the criticism for that film comes into focus. I think with this film, I don't get that sense personally. I'm curious if either of you do. I feel like this is a film about how not much has changed at all. And if anything, things have gotten progressively worse. And the fact that we do see a lot of these same gaming and contempt in our government and our system about how democracy is a great idea, but when it's run by terrible people or people with political grudges, it can be misused to harm and rob the rights of other individuals. And I like that this film had a more complicated message like that when comparing it to other 1960s films that sort of do a coloring book version of the civil rights movement. But yeah, Will, what what did you think about uh, just in general with the ending and the handling of the subject matter and then kind of just the connection to today? Well, I mean, I do appreciate like you're saying, I think the story remains as urgent and relevant as before. And I do think it's one that, you know, I, I didn't realize it took like 10 years for the story to come to the screen. But I am glad that's coming out now because I think it speaks volumes to what's going on right now. And I do think it is a very, like I said, relevant and timely film. And I'm, I'm glad that it's coming out now. But I think what you're saying is true in that, like, it does feel like it's intentionally evoking like a 90 sensibility. I think the comparison is going to probably be made the most is A Few Good Men since Sorkin wrote that film as well. And that's another 90s based court film. Uh, it has like that sensibility. And I think that's where like the smaltiness of the ending really comes into play. And that I think that really does hinder it because that that old fashioned sensibility, while comforting in a respect, it does kind of feel like this is the type of film that you would get like on VHS in like 1996 and just pop in and, you know, just enjoy after a day of work. But I do think, yeah, like as far as like being a like punchy or more relevant film, I do. I have to agree with Abby in that. Like, I think it could have been a little bit edgier. It could have made its point a little bit more pronounced as far as maybe as uh just like proving itself to be such a piece of work for now, as opposed to being like somewhat nostalgic or somewhat uh, wistful, I guess, in that res- in that respect. But um, yeah, I, I think it like I said, it, it does what it's doing well enough, I guess. I, I do think there's a better film that would maybe come out if someone other than Sorkin was directing this. But I don't think what he's doing is bad as a director. I just don't think he has the uh, like the grace or the uh, visual prowess or even the actors like caliber like giving the actors the performance that they need to pull out of this material. It does kind of feel like a better director might've pushed the movie over the edge into like good or even great territory, but I think he's able to carry it into being a pretty good film by and large. I am very curious at this point where our grades are going to land. This is the rare moment where I don't think I fully know where you or like have even an idea of where your, your letter grades are going to go. So let's start with that. Let's start with you, Abby. What is your some final thoughts you have that you haven't had a chance to mention yet? And then your grade for Chicago Seven. Yeah, um, I think I think Will and I are on on pretty similar pages. Um, I think it's it's an enjoyable enough movie. I I do feel like it it feels like it could have been released in an earlier time. So John, when you mentioned that this had started uh, being developed much earlier, that is not 
wildly surprising. And also that <laughs> right, Spielberg yeah. would have directed that. I, I feel like the end result would have been maybe visually a little more interesting, but tonally very similar. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I enjoy it. It's a good enough movie. Um, I would love to see this same material visited by, um, I don't know, somebody, somebody else, somebody with a little more, uh, kind of critical historical eye sometime in the future. But, um, for now I will, I will take what we can get. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll give it a solid B. A solid B from Abby. What about you, Will Ashton, with an A? Is that does this mean is there an A in the future for this movie? Unfortunately, not. No, I'm pretty close to where Abby is. I think I'm just slightly more critical, and I think my criticisms may also derive from the fact that I feel like this movie doesn't really do Abby Hoffman justice, in my view. Like, especially having a known communist speaking the virtues of a democracy, democracy and a good democratic society doesn't feel right to me. That feels like the most Sorkinist moment and that's why i think where kind of the bigger issues of the film start to play and in addition to the tacked on ending that you're referring to john that that feels artifice and false but yeah i mean i think for the most part especially the court scenes which i i'm a sucker for courtroom dramas i don't like going to court in real life but you know as a movie i could sit for hours and watch courtroom people just yelling at each other and saying legal terms i don't fully understand but i can understand their importance through uh through the the arts the dramatic arts but um yeah i think it's a film like Abby said, good enough. I think it's a, the proper term here. It, it does what it needs to do. I think people are going to watch it and enjoy it on Netflix. And I think having a film like this, that's not super visually stunning, but gets the material across in a fairly easy to understand and fairly blunt fashion will make it a enjoyable thing to watch on Netflix. And I think it'll find its audience that way, maybe even more so than it would have if it went to theaters in a traditional route, a regular year otherwise. But yeah, I think a solid like high B minus is where I stand on it. It's fine. I enjoy it. It's middle tier for Sorkin, but he's better at being middle tier than I think most writers and screenwriters and directors are. So uh, with that, that's not an insult or anything. It's, it's, it's a fine film, and I think most people like it. All right. Yeah. So at this point, I, I'm not surprised. I had a feeling I'd be a bit more positive than either one of you or both of you. But yeah, I, I just think this film really worked on me. I... Yeah, I I think to those courtroom scenes, I just really relished the insanity of this real life story. I definitely got the impression that this is a stranger than fiction sort of thing. And I think the fact that Sorkin was able to pull this off in such an entertaining way, able to pull off really good pacing for a film that's over two hours, I, I'm really impressed by it. I give him a lot of credit for, you know, even though I have some issues with how he directs some of the performances, I think just about everything else here is pretty tight. So I'm a solid B plus. I think that, yeah, there are some hit or miss performances here, particularly with some of the accents. Uh, part, you know, I think Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, they're not bad in this film, but I do think that they're cons- consistently overshadowed uh, by other performances here. Maybe not Cohen. I think he's really great, but I do think to what you're saying, Will, I, I did sort of get that same feeling. Like, And also Yahya Abdul-Mateen, which we didn't really get a chance to get into the the way that character is portrayed, but yeah. I do think he is really strong in this. And um, also Calvin Harrison Jr. No, I was going to say, I thought he was, if not the best performance, probably the second or third best. I mean, I do agree Rylance is really good, and I think he's probably, I guess, the main character of this. I think it's supposed to be either... Uh, um, Redmayne or pure Hoffman. ensemble kind of thing. Well, I mean, I think it's meant to be like a mix between Redmayne and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, but it ends up being Rylance because I think that's the character that Sorkin relates to the most, who ends up usually becoming the main characters in his screenplays. 
either. I guess I differ a little bit. I think that he's he's seeing himself more in the red main character because that is the more of well, the film's protagonist. He's the one who goes through the most most development. I think. Sure. I mean, I'm sure. He, I'm sure he sees himself a little bit in every one of these characters. Uh, not to I use hope. that that cliche, <laughs> but I mean, I think more often than not he sides with Rylance. I, I think you know, obviously, I think you're right. I think he's an ensemble piece, though. I don't get the whole like stand up thing that uh, Hoffman does throughout the film. Like he's preparing for his like one hour. Yeah, Netflix I think it's fun. Throughout, <laughs> I think it's really. I think that is one a fun little gimmick of the movie that kept me engaged during some of the more exposition heavy scenes. Instead of relying on flashbacks entirely, you had these like competing voices and competing environments, really capturing the differences between these characters. That worked on me totally. I just thought it was kind of weird. I didn't know where you two stood on that, but uh, it's not bad. It just was like, okay, this is kind of weird, but it's a sorkin touch for sure. Yeah, I, I, I liked those portions, but I wasn't quite sure where it fit in the timeline. Um, but I, I think like you, John, I, I ended up enjoying those portions quite a bit. And I thought they lended a, a good deal of perspective. So all of us are on the B side of the trial of the Chicago 7. I, I think a lot of people will enjoy this, at least to some extent. I think it's an easy recommend because there's a good chance you'll at least enjoy it. And there is a decent chance you might really enjoy it. I know some people who really like this film a lot so hopefully our listeners who check this out will be in that camp all right oh i should i totally missed my chance to be like you be the judge but oh well we gotta move on all right i'm here with extra milestone host sam noland for a nice little sidebar nice little moment away from the monotony of cinemaholics hey sam hey john it's good to be here and listen Let's just cut right to the chase. We yes. have a great podcast for the listeners to check out. That's right. We're here to tell you about the Pop Culture Show, which is one of the top pop culture podcasts. It's awesome. They have amazing guests, really funny segments, which I know our listeners, they're all about funny segments. Mm-hmm. And my favorite part, they have some incredible giveaways, Sam. Yeah, these giveaways are not something that you're going to want to just just blink twice at if that even means anything and it's I'll, I'll have you know that all three of the hosts barnes leslie and cubby have been in radio and television for many years many more than us as a matter of fact and have tons of connections to real in guests that other podcasts just don't have access to so this is what sets yes. the pop culture show apart yes as podcasters ourselves we know getting getting guests is actually really hard <laughs> uh, it does take a lot of experience and connections and all that fun stuff and you will definitely get that with the pop culture show but okay you want to hear about the giveaway yeah. i do too so this month the pop culture show is giving away a free that's right free four night states one of the best resorts in the caribbean now i'm from the caribbean um, so i definitely put my stamp of approval on this place it's called cat mason resort and spots in saint lucia it is awesome mm. and sam how do i how do i qualify to uh, get this free Fortnite stay. How do I do it? John, I'll tell you. Now, you're probably thinking that it's a very complicated process. Lots of digital hoops to jump through. Not this giveaway. To get qualified for this Fortnite stay, all you have to do is listen to the pop culture show. That's all That's it takes. Right. Yeah. Very simple. Now, if you're wondering, okay, well, I want to listen. Where are the episodes? All right, here's all that info. Pretty mm-hmm. easy. They have new episodes dropping every Monday at 10 a.m. Again, that's Monday at 10 a.m. Mondays at 10 a.m. And so, yeah, just subscribe to the Pop Culture Show on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, anywhere you get podcasts. They're all over the place. 
Sam and I were talking earlier about how annoying it is sometimes that some podcasts, they, they're hard to find. Like you're trying yeah. to, I just want to subscribe. And uh, this is one of the pop culture shows, one of the ones that makes it pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, so this is your, your one-stop shop, so to speak, for the latest celebrity news, funny observations from the massive, ever-expanding world of pop culture, and just an all-around fun podcast for you to check out, which I know is never a bad selling point. It is the Pop Culture Show. That is a big reason we wanted to share it with you. We all we know you all want to have some fun. You'll definitely get that with the Pop Culture Show. But okay, you can get more info on the Pop Culture Show and, of course, that free vacation mm. by going to thepopcultureshow.com. So easy thepopcultureshow.com. Check it out. You will be glad you did. Let's talk about Love and Monsters. I'm the only one who saw this, so I will be pretty brief, but I have really been looking forward to this. This is a post-apocalyptic action adventure romance, and you all know I love action adventure, and I especially if they get to fit the romance in too in a very believable way. This film kind of looks like it might be young adult YA, that sort of thing, because this is Dylan O'Brien coming back from really off of the Maze Runner series. It was the last like high profile thing that he did. Uh, he was injured on the third film. So it has been a little while since we've seen him. His film roles have been a little sparse. This new film is directed by Michael Matthews, and it also stars Michael Rooker, Ariana Greenblatt, and Jessica Henwick. Big fan of Jessica Henwick. I think that if the Iron Fist series had her as the main character, it would Maybe things would be different um, for the Defenders on Netflix, but that is a conversation I think we've already had at this point. Now, this film is video on demand, and it does sort of have that, uh, it's paramount. So I think they were looking at this to be theatrical because it is a very big film in its scope. It's not very long or anything. It's only 109 minutes, but it definitely feels like a lot happened. So the story of this is that it's kind of satirizing asteroid movies from like the 1990s in the sense that an asteroid is coming to Earth and as the world decides what to do, they blow it up like an Armageddon or Deep Impact or what have you. And the result of that, the unintended result, is that the chemicals from the rockets as the asteroids dissipate into Earth's atmosphere, transform all of the cold-blooded reptiles on Earth into Godzilla-like creatures. Uh, not really kaiju. There are like giant creatures, but everything from like little, you know, like smaller creatures too. It's kind of interesting the the monster variety that we get in this. So it's been seven years, and we follow this main character played by Dylan O'Brien. His name is Joel, and he's been hiding in a bunker for seven years. He's been separated from his high school girlfriend Amy, played by Jessica Henwick, who she only lives eighty five miles away. Now fossil fuels are just sort of gone at this point. And there's no way for him to go see her. Uh, He would have to walk on foot for seven days. And they've been radioing each other. And finally, he's like, okay, she's in danger. He finds out that he has to go see her in order to potentially save her life. So he decides, even though he's perceived as a bit of a coward, the other people in his bunker, they've all sort of paired off. So he's the only single person in his bunker. There's a fun little commentary on in the post-apocalypse, like what people do to sort of you know, when you quarantine, like who you hook up with, there's some some layers to how that uh, coincides with uh, the current day. But regardless, Joel decides, you know what, I'm going to leave my bunker. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to take all of these risks in order to be with someone I love. And I think 
I really like this film, but it's just so unfortunate timing because I think it's the opposite message a lot of people need to hear right now. And I do not understand why they wouldn't wait for this film to come out when there's a coronavirus vaccine and it's way more responsible to have a film that really is like on the nose saying like the point of this character is stepping out into the unknown and like getting out of quarantine and doing all this stuff. And I realized some people are going to listen to the show and be like, well, you know what? That's, that's what people should do. And they would agree with that. Okay. You, you can watch this film and you, you won't be uh, offended in the least, but I definitely found it to be a very risky, uh, as, kind of thing to get across to people and i do not understand why they release this now it just does not make sense to me because we're you know coronavirus stuff and i, I don't want to get into more on that but judging the film on its own just really looking at it it's really enjoyable i mean o'brien is just so he has like so much likable charisma to him but he's also like an active energetic actor you really like connect with him there's a lot of dry wit he brings to the screen here i think that there's not enough jessica henwick she uh, eventually we, we we really see most of her like through flashbacks and getting a little bit more clue into like what the relationship was like and it's it's all fine i just i never really fell into the romance here and there were points where i felt like maybe that was the point maybe this is a film kind of you know, in all of its like monster, you know, survival and apocalypse, uh, good dinosaur-esque journeys that it has. Uh, it's very boy and his dog. I think throughout all of that, there is something interesting in here about how being in a relationship isn't the most important thing in the world. And having connections with people who, like friends who become your family, there, there is more to life than just having a girlfriend uh, or having a boyfriend or anything like that. And I, I really connected with that message. I think that was a really positive thing for younger people to sort of get. It's like, even in the apocalypse, even when everything is sort of falling apart, you know, we all have priorities and like love is important, but you know, there are other relationships you should value in your life and you shouldn't lose sight of the people who care about you. So I, I ultimately found this a very charming, heartwarming and exciting film to watch. It's really solid. So I give it a B. I think that if you like films like Zombieland, you know, where they take the apocalypse and have a little bit of fun with it, right? Then I think you'll have a good time watching this. Brian Duffield did uh, co-wrote the screenplay with Matthew Robinson. And as Will actually uh, pointed out to me, which I didn't really make the connection already, he is the screenwriter for another film we're going to talk about in a moment. So more on that later. But And director. And, uh, and director. Uh, that's Love and Monsters. It's available on VOD right now. Abby, Will, you know, I don't know if I really recommend you both go out of your way to see this, but I don't know if either of you already have it on your radar. What about you, Will? Uh, yeah, actually, I was going to see this at the drive-in yesterday, but unfortunately it didn't work Good out. Good drive-in movie, I bet. Yeah, so I might actually see this later this week. I want to see it. I, I didn't know this was a thing until this week. But um, yeah, it, it seems like a fun movie, and I'm glad it's getting good reviews. And I like Dylan O'Brien. I hope he uh, um, keeps doing well. Because I think, did he like get really hurt during that he last did, movie? Yeah. He did, yeah. And I, I, yeah, no, I think it was um, American Torch. Assassin, right? American Assassin. Oh, maybe it was. Maybe we were on the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought, they delayed it. Uh, yeah, I think Maze Runner got delayed because he got hurt. Yeah, you're right. You're with right. American Assassin. But yeah, I'm glad he's doing well. I'm glad he's happy. I hope he's happy. Um, and, uh, you know, he seems like a good chap and a charismatic young actor. So good for him. I'm glad he has a good film. Abby, I don't know how you feel about Dylan O'Brien, but I'm ready to have my heart broken. I actually I haven't seen the Maze Runner movies. You can start booing me now. Um, uh, that's but fine. I, you're I, not I, missing you're, much. Yeah, you're not missing much. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm more of a fan of him. Teen Wolf. That's where I became a uh -huh. Brian Stan. 
Um, I see. I, for me, it's the first time the indie film that he made I like a few that years film back. Too, yeah. yeah, I like that movie. Okay. Um, I, I do like Jessica Henwick quite a bit, though. So I, uh, I'm glad that she is getting a significant role in in a movie that it sounds like could have been better timed, but is fairly solid otherwise. All right, that's Love and Monsters. Let's talk about film I have not seen. I'm going to take a little bit of a breather here uh, so that you, Abby, can talk about American Utopia. Because, Will, I, f- I forget, actually. You said you have not seen this, right? Or you have? No, I have, yeah. I, oh, I have. made a okay, point great. to see this one, yes. I perfect, would be perfect. very sad and mad if I didn't get a chance to see it, so thankfully <laughs> I did. Great, awesome. Well, then I will turn it to you, Abby Olchesi. What is American Utopia, who directed it, and what is it about? Um, American Utopia is uh, directed by Spike Lee, and it is a kind of a concert film uh, depicting the uh, Broadway performance of David Byrne's show, David Byrne's American Utopia, um, which ran on Broadway, I think, late 2019 into early 2020. Uh, And that was kind of the the Broadway residency of uh, a a touring show that he had been doing around the country to to great acclaim um, after or uh, kind of to follow up his uh, his album, American Utopia, which I believe was produced by Brian Eno. Um, So the concert film is um, just kind of it's it's a filming of the performance and the performance is uh, like you might expect from uh, a film starring. starring David Byrne, a stage show kind of designed by David Byrne, much like um, the uh, the Talking Heads concert doc, Stop Making Sense, that uh, Jonathan Demme directed. Uh, it's it's pretty sparse, and um, the uh, the design of it is is pretty minimal, I think, to, uh, to help audiences sort of have a lack of other stimuli that keeps them focused on uh, Byrne and the other performers on stage. Uh, the performers are all wearing kind of identical gray suits. They are surrounded by sort of a chain curtain that uh, closes the stage into sort of a square shape. Um, and Byrne is performing songs from the American Utopia album, as well as uh, other songs from throughout his career. A lot of them are uh, kind of classic talking head songs. There's uh, a couple of songs from his uh album that he did with St. Vincent, Love This Giant. Um, there's also a performance of uh, Janelle Monae's song, uh, Hell You Tall About, her uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protest song that he, um, Byrne makes a, a strong note of, of mentioning that he got her permission to do it because I feel like that that's that's really meaningful. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting and kind of joyful uh, piece of performance art. Uh, the, uh, the performers that he has around him are just extremely talented musicians and dancers. And it's clear that they, they really enjoy being together and working with him. Um, the thing that, uh, that I, I feel a little bit cold on is just the, the act of watching a concert, a live concert film during COVID when you can't get out of your house and go to an actual concert, feels like it has sort of an extra amount of remove that may just be a personal thing for me that kind of kept me from from fully engaging with it. There's definitely an energy, I think, to that performance that is really hard to recapture outside of a live setting. Um, and especially kind of a bummer when you realize that it's going to be a while before you can have an experience like that yourself. Um, but I do think Spike Lee proves to be a, a pretty solid, uh, I mean, obviously he's, he's a great director and he's also a very good, uh, uh, filmer of, of live performances like this. He really does a good job of capturing the energy, making it kind of a unique and interesting experience, um, following the performers and certain amounts of like momentum and movement on stage. Um, and, uh, you really kind of see him 
come to the fore in the uh, the Hell You Tom Bout sequence where he intercuts the uh, performance of the song, which is just a recitation of the names of of Black Americans killed by police um, with photos of those individuals. Um, I guess not just killed by police, Black Americans killed by violence um, and racist violence. So that's that's a really powerful moment. And if anything, I would have liked to have seen a little more stylized uh, interjections like that. Um, but on the whole, I still think it's it's a pretty enjoyable experience. All right. What about you, Will Ashen? Is American Utopia the film of your American dreams? Yeah, no, I love this thing. Um, I did get a chance to see the touring 2018 production, not on Broadway, but when I was in my town. And I believe I've said this before on the show, but easily one of my favorite concert going experiences ever. Not that I have a ton to begin with um, comparatively to film, but I mean, I know like seeing David Byrne live is it's more than just like seeing a good concert. It's like getting a whole visual musical experience. And uh, I know stop making sense. I mean, I think in my view, it's probably the best concert film I've ever seen. I mean, I, I know there's quite a few I haven't seen, so I'm not going to say it's like the best ever, but it's certainly high up there. And I think it's really hard to make something that on Jonathan Demme's level, because I think as good as he was as being a dramatic filmmaker, as well as a comedic director as well, I think concerts and like live performances were where he often was as best as a director. But I do think, you know, Spike Lee is definitely one of the best filmmakers you could get to do this story. And I think he actually brings a lot of visual stylesis that was really hoping they would bring to this, especially compared to something like seeing uh, the tape version of Hamilton on Disney Plus. I found myself pretty disappointed with how the visual presentation was as far as the taping of it. Like I didn't think the sound mixing was as good or like some of the angles I felt were pretty flat. Granted, I don't think they made that with the intention of it becoming a film. I think it just kind of came a film afterward. But I think especially compared to that live performance, this is really, I think, the way you can do it in a visual medium and on film. And if anything, I wish I could have seen this in theaters to really get the full like audio experience of it. I mean, seeing at home is just a lesser experience in that regard. But nevertheless, I do think they translate to a film really, really well. And uh, I mean, I, I haven't seen The Five Bloods yet, but I know I, from, my, from what I have heard and everyone praising it, it seems like this is just a great year for Spike Lee. And, you know, having this film come right after that just proves that, you know, he is one of our best working filmmakers for a reason. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely really got a lot out of this experience. It's probably one of my favorite movies so far this year. Yeah, well, you you need to get on to Five Bloods, I mean, that is that is a high priority in my opinion. But yes, I I agree that from the look of things, this is a great year for Spike Lee, and I this is another situation like with Dick Johnson is dead, where you two saw something that apparently is like one of the best things of the year, and I still haven't seen it, so uh, <laughs> I, I hate that. But um, yeah, I, I planned to see this yesterday, but I didn't realize I thought it was going to be hitting HBO Max. At a certain time, turns out it wasn't until later that day, so I missed my chance to see it, and I haven't had a chance yet. But this is on HBO. You can watch it in the HBO app or HBO Max, and it, it sounds like it's really worth checking out. So, uh, yeah, Abigail Chessy, what is uh, what's your grade on this thing, and uh, anything else you wanted to add before we move on? Sure, uh, I don't have a ton much else to add. Uh, I I kind of struggle where to put this because I know that my my personal reaction to it has not been the same as a lot of other people's. Um, and I still think it's a, it's a very well-made film, no matter what my, my other kind of personal qualms about it might be. But, uh, yeah, I think I would give it again, probably a, a, a solid B. Um, it's, it's a really, 
interestingly and enjoyably made uh, concert film. Uh, it's it still kind of fits like the facsimile of a live performance form of of concert doc, which is generally not my favorite thing, but I, I still think it's pretty strong. There is two B's in the name Abby, and there's two B's for Abby in this episode. So I do enjoy at least the symmetry of that. Will Ashton, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually a little bit higher than that. I would say I'm pretty much an A minus on this film. Um, I don't think this quite lives up to stop making sense, just because I think, like I said, that's probably the 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 nadir, like the top of the uh, concert film genre. But this is really, I mean, as a spiritual sequel to that, I mean, basically as as good as I think you could hope. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, David Byrne is such a kinetic and uh, very visual and present uh, entertainer, and I think. You know, even though he's in his twilight years at this point, he still knows how to put on a great show. It's really hard to compare this to the live version just because, you know, uh, live will always be better in some respects. But I think as far as bringing it to a, a film and making it accessible to a wide audience, I think they did a really great job. And uh, I, yeah, I had a lot of fun revisiting the show and uh, I hope a lot of people do as well. So a solid A minus for me. All right. As we mentioned before, this is available on HBO Max. If you live in the U.S., it's available on the streaming service Crave. If you live in Canada, and I believe Universal Pictures will be distributing the film in the, uh, most other parts of the globe, if not the rest of the globe. And sounds like you should check it out. That's David Byrne's American Utopia. And with that, we'll go to a film that I've seen that, Will, you've seen two-thirds of, and it just seems like you're, you're whittling away at this new movie, Spontaneous. Uh, what's going on with that? When are you going to finish it? Well, I had a screener of it and then uh, I didn't get a chance to finish it before uh, what was two weeks ago. I forget what episode that was when it came out. Uh, I didn't get a chance to finish it in time for that. And then my computer crashed. And so I was without a computer for like a week and a half. So I was hoping to finish it before this episode, but I prioritized Trial of Chicago 7 for obvious reasons. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, that's it's nothing to do with the quality of film. It's just my personal timing and misfortune with uh, technical issues that have prevented me from watching it in full. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, definitely one I've enjoyed so far. I don't want to steal your thunder since you've seen the film. Yeah, well, you know, fortunately, based on what you've told me, I think that your opinion will probably stay about the same, even though you have not seen the ending. But OK, let's talk about it. So spontaneous. This is a new sci fi, romantic, dark comedy very interesting combination there it's basically like a high school sort of dramedy black comedy sort of thing where you have these teenagers who are going about their daily lives one of them is played by Catherine langford the other is played by charlie Plummer. and all of a sudden for no reason ever explained kids in their senior class start spontaneously combusting it happens oh they never early in the film hmm? they never give a reason no I wasn't sure if they would. <laughs> no, and I, I think that like that's not really spoiling anything because you you probably you get sort of the feeling that that's the point is that it's random no, I, and it ties into the theme of the film, which is why I feel okay right. saying that. No, and I was I was worried that that's actually a relief for me because I was worried they were going to tack on some dumb thing like it's a water or something like that. <laughs> like the happening. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. No, that's that is a pleasure of the film that they never try to explain that. I mean, they do, but that's part of the joke of the film is that people try to give all these reasons for why it must be happening. And then it even has like an emotional resonance that is a good reason for you to finish the film well, because I do think it really works in what the film is ultimately oh, I'm to finish it, trying sure. to say. Yeah. So so like I said, yeah, it, it starts off kind of slow, right? Like it's just like one student and then a couple of weeks go by and then it's another student, then two students, then four. 
And there is just like this rising tension of like this thing keeps happening. And it just seems like the government is like nobody can figure out what's going on and how to fix it. And then it's not long. I think a lot of people are going to figure out that this is a film that is really talking about mass shootings. And um, the, you could sort of generalize it even further, but I think it's it's talking about the trauma of teenagers trying to normalize their existence when just going to high school or being anywhere in their like their small world of like figuring out who they are and coming of age, they could die just at any moment. And there's no, it just feels like there's no reason for it. There's no explanation, which is why I think the film ultimately works for not explaining what's going on. And we have this love story between these two characters who sort of like bond in the midst of this tragedy. And this film, you know, it's, it really hits the quadrants because it's really funny, like a lot of laugh moments. It's really touching and sweet, which, you know, ties into the romance. And it's, it's also really dramatic. And it's like, it really like hits you on an emotional level, especially And like the last act of this film, I just found myself really in pain for these characters and what they have to go through here. This was written and directed by Brian Duffield. And I I think this is a, just a great effort from him. I think that he had like a solid idea. This is his first film directing. Um, He's, he's written films like underwater and uh, the babysitter. And I just think that he, he went into this movie with such a clear idea of what he wanted to say. And I think he just really pulls it off. And I think a lot of the reason he pulls it off is that a Catherine Langford is a really believable teenager. I think that's why she keeps getting cast as one in things. I don't know if you agree with that. Well, yeah. Great American accent too. Right on. Yeah. I forget all the time that she's not, uh, she's, she doesn't have a real American accent and Charlie Plummer. It's, it's hard not to root for Charlie Plummer. We just saw him in words and bathroom walls. And I just, I just want the kid to be happy. Just make a movie where he gets some ice cream and has a good day. Why does he have to have all these sad things happen to him? I know. I know. (laughs) Uh, We also have Piper Parabo in this as well. I haven't seen her in a while and it's, it's weird to see her playing a mother. I was like, wait, you, what you, you're a mom in this. Like uh, it's definitely new for me. Haley law is in this and she, she really transcends kind of like the typical best friend who is like the token black person role and ends up being like a real stealth heart of the film, which I really appreciated. And then Rob Hubel is in this and, you know, he kind of is doing the like Matt Walsh thing in Briggsby Bear where he's a really funny guy, but he's not really there to be funny. Yeah, he's the resident concerned dad that has a sarcastic sense of humor, which I think yeah. he's played at least three times. I know he's also in Valley Girl where they like did the same thing, but it's like put a fake mustache yeah. on him. <laughs> He's great in everything. I mean, he's just always, he always like does like the right amount of Rob, you know, uh, and that definitely goes for uh, children's hospital. If you haven't seen that, but yeah, I, this really worked on me. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I really liked this. I, I really enjoyed the whole thing, even in the, some of darker moments that kind of mm-hmm. were tough to watch. Yeah. I mean, I'll add the caveat that, you know, for whatever reason, my grade changes, whatever I'm going to give it. Um, next week I'll, I'll make a caveat, but I don't think it will. Like you said, like, I, I do agree with you that I, I didn't go in this movie with high or low expectations. I didn't know anything about it. So I kind of just went in, uh, fairly blind and, uh, yeah, like I agree with you that, um, this easily seems like the type of film where we go like, Oh, it's a great premise, but it didn't really live up to its execution. This is one of those rare times where it's like, Oh, actually it does. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the performances are sound, like the tonal balance, especially for a first time director, is really astute, especially for something like this, where like the vi- the metaphor of it could very easily go wrong at any point. I'm really impressed by how it's able to keep it going and still, like you said, be 
pretty simple, but also very, very uh, a poignant and, and, you know, simple, but also like resonant throughout. And I, I didn't really I I didn't want to target any one thing on it. I was thinking about school su- uh, school shootings. I was also thinking like suicide, which have been increasing with yeah. teenagers and stuff like there's, there's a lot of things you could incorporate the metaphor be obviously COVID is going to be the one I think people are going to put on it this year. Not that that was ever the intent of the film, but um, in any case, yeah, I, I don't think you really, like I said, I'm glad that they didn't explain it. I was worried that was going to be the case by the end of it. Um, I, I do think it's ultimately about the characters themselves. And I agree with you, like so many movies, like they don't really relate because they feel like the characters are written by like a 40 year old dude trying to figure out what it's like to be a teenagers. And for the most part, even though it does get a little too cutesy at times, I think they're able to make the teenagers feel like well-rounded people in a way that is believable, but also heightened for this situation in a way that I was really impressed by. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely echo a lot of what you're saying. We should definitely say Brian Duffield is not in his 40s. He's like in his early mid 30s. So, right. but I get, I know what you're trying to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I really recommend this. And I think that uh, you're right that like the metaphor can go in a lot of different directions. And there's only one thing that happens in the ending that I could maybe see you being like rolling your eyes a little bit. It's like at the very, very end though. And it doesn't really... It, it wouldn't ruin the film for you, I don't think. And yeah. But I still want you to see it. I, I'm very curious how you respond to your, some of the final moments. And it's, uh, it's, it's a I good movie. It for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a B plus on Spontaneous. Solid B plus. What about you, Will? Uh, well, like I said, caveat, haven't finished the film. Yeah, um, yeah. But at the moment, I'm a pretty high B on it. Uh, my only real honest complaint is that I do think, I, I get why they wrote the character this way, but I do feel like she's almost a little too passive at times. Like she is like a little too satirotic to the point where it's like it is it almost gets a little too flippant as far as the approach. But I think I get the idea is like I think it makes sense to have the character be this kind of distant or emotionally detached person because that's where you can able you're able to approach this in a lighthearted and kind of goofy fashion. But I really am impressed with how the movie is able to make the deaths like serious enough for the other characters while like able to have that lighthearted tone and make it very snappy and quick throughout. And that it's just something that most seasons directors can't even really accomplish. So the fact that Brian uh, Duffield was able to do that with his first film again, very impressive. And uh, yeah, I, I easily it's one of my favorite surprises I've seen so far this year. Spontaneous is available to watch right now in limited release, and it's also available on video on demand. Uh, I was able to see it on Amazon Prime, which was the cheapest option to rent it. And I, I think that, yeah, I, it's worth renting. And I think that if you can see this at a drive-in, I have a feeling yeah. this would be really fun. I'm glad we got this as a bit of a late review. This came out mm. a couple of weeks ago, but I'm glad we did make time for it eventually because I think it was worth the wait. Yeah, good on, good on Brian Duffield. Two uh, two solid films this year, I guess. I heard, going off what you said for Love and Monsters, at least. Yeah, I, I know some people who weren't that into Love and Monsters, but that's not me. I was super into it. But anyway, let's talk about our last film. Will Ashen, you saw... This at TIFF, uh, we mentioned it earlier, The Kid Detective. Uh, this is a new R-rated Evan Morgan film. He directed and wrote it, stars Adam Brody. What's The Kid Detective about? This sounds kind of nice, you know, Timmy Failure, Encyclopedia Brown. Is this, is it, can we assume this is for the kids? No, this is a R-rated film <laughs> uh, through and through. Yeah, the, the tone of it is a little bit closer to, um, I think I said in my review, like Mystery Team by Way of Brick. Um, that's like the approach of it. And as far as the, uh, synopsis of it, I, I do think, uh, Encyclopedia Brown is connect as correct in that it is basically following like, what if Encyclopedia Brown grew up to be a jaded kind of, uh, 
uh, socially distanced and uh, ultimately fairly depressed. That's what I always year assumed. old man. Uh, which I mean, yeah, it, it's a premise. I feel like I, I've said this analogy before, but it feels like one of those like ideas that's been sitting in somebody's like in a bunch of people's like uh, shelf for a long time, and they've been wanting to get it made, and then eventually. Uh, this guy, Evan Morgan, just finally got through and like 15 or more screenwriters just like snapped their fingers like, dang it, that was my idea. Like I, I wanted to make that movie, but he got it made first, so he gets credit for it. But um, yeah, this is basically a uh, or not basically it is a um, star vehicle for what's his face? The OC guy, um, uh, Adam Brody, who uh, I I, I want to say he produced this, but I could be wrong. I don't think he actually produced this, but it feels like something he produced. But in any case, um, yeah, he's down his luck. His glory years are well behind him at this point. He is, um, you know, reliving the fantasies of a man or a kid who is half his age at this point. And uh, basically when all the chips are down and he's basically out for the count, a young teenager comes up to him hoping to solve the mystery of her murdered boyfriend, which uh is somehow loosely connected to a drug spree that's going on around town, as well as a few nefarious characters that ultimately make our lead character or lead sleuth um, question basically everything that he's known or accepted in his small town existence from this point forward. And I believe when I um, was watching this at TIFF or virtual TIFF, um, at one point I paused the film and I was messaging John. I was like, I think this is the movie that like, if I were to assign like a dark comedy for you, I think this is the type of film that you would like because it is like, it, it is very punchy in its approach. Like as far as like, it's not too bleak, but like the dark moments kind of come up creepily throughout. And I think it's good about like kind of getting you off guard as far as like when the darkest moments hit. Because like the tone of it is fairly like it's stylistic to us in a sense, but not fully. It's a little bit more reserved and it's definitely an indie film as far as uh, what it's trying to do. But like the like dark elements definitely start to creep in towards the second half. And I think they do hit just because of uh, how starkly they are compared to the more lighthearted moments at the beginning, which I think is ultimately what endeared me to the film overall, because I do think the first half of the film it's a little bit uncertain compared to the rest of the film as far as just like trying to get this tonal balance, which is definitely more muted and kind of uh, reflective and wistful, but also having a kind of satirotic sense of humor that doesn't fully downplay the darkness, but doesn't make it completely lighthearted or not lighthearted at the same time. And it's definitely a tricky balance. I think it eventually finds, but it, it does result in a somewhat shaky film throughout but i do think what ultimately makes it work is the commitment of our two leads which would be adam brody and uh sophie nacelle i i, I don't know if i'm pronouncing uh, Nelise. Right. yeah she, Nelise. she's french canadian so yeah we we probably don't know how to pronounce that right between the <laughs> three of us but i think uh their performances are ultimately what i think makes the movie work beyond its somewhat shakier uh dramatic and comedic moments which uh don't always land for me, but I think the moments that work here are what I ultimately reflect back on the most. And I think those are the moments that by and large made me endear to the film, which I do think I, I don't think this is going to be something that finds a wide audience. But I think if you're the right audience for this type of thing, you will enjoy it just because it, it knows what's trying to be in a respect. I don't think tonally it matches it, but I think Evan Morgan knows what type of film he's trying to make here. And I think by the end he finds it, but I just don't. I, I do think it, it, it finds its groove as it goes along, but I just don't think it really figures out how exactly it can communicate 
that to the full extent. But as a modest effort that, you know, it doesn't live up to its potential, which is a very fitting theme for the character. <laughs> um, but it, it does succeed in its own kind of awkward and endearing sort of way, which I think, you know, is fitting for what the film is trying to communicate. And I think it works more than it doesn't. So I'll give it a modest B minus. I wouldn't rush out the theater to see it because I think you can only see it in theaters right now. Yeah, it's in theatrical release. Yeah, which I would say, you know, it's a perfectly fine VOD film. Um, if whenever it does hit VOD, which I imagine will be in a few weeks, um, check out that way. It's fine. It's enjoyable, especially if you like Adam Brody. It's a nice starring vehicle for him. Uh, but nothing essential. Just a fine film that was a nice kind of a palate cleanser after some really depressing virtual TIFF movies, <laughs> uh, which is saying something because it's it definitely is a dark comedy, uh, pitch black comedy through and through. So. That's a kid detective. Not a must-see, but enjoyable nonetheless. Yeah, with Adam Brody, I really like the projects he's picking, you know, between this and, like, Ready or Not. And, yeah, I like I like edgy Brody. He's fun. Um, hmm. Abby Olchesky. I'm curious. Between the kid detective and spontaneous, you have to pick one or the other. Do you pick kid detective? Do you pick spontaneous? Or do you flip a coin? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I would probably pick kid detective. Um, because I, I, I also like a, I, li- I like a dark Brody. <laughs> um, and it's, that, that's it's kind of a, I know. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see, uh, I, I'd like to see kind of a feature length version of that because he was one of my favorite parts of, of ready or not alongside Samara weaving. And I didn't get quite enough of him in that. So yeah, this seems like something that would perhaps scratch that itch. Well, let's finish out the show with just a couple of things we have all been up to. Still with you, Abby. So what do you have anything to plug this week? I do. Um, I mentioned the Mortuary Collection uh, at the top of this. If you want to read my full review for that, that is up on the pitch, uh, as well as an interview with uh, Ryan Spindell and Clancy Brown that turned out to be uh, pretty fun. Uh, so that's that's worth checking out as well. Um, also later this week, I will be, uh, publishing my first, or I will have my first essay published for RogerEbert.com, uh, on the, yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about that. Very exciting. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and it's actually, it's appropriate because you guys mentioned that a few weeks ago, you celebrated the uh, 65th anniversary of the night of the hunter on extra milestone. And my essay is about that. Because uh, The Night of the Hunter is one of my favorite movies. So, uh, yeah, you can check that out on Thursday. Um, It'll be obviously on the Ebert website, and I'll post a link to it uh, on my Twitter as soon as that comes out. All right. already added it to our intro for next week. Going to give you a fun little shout out then for sure. All right, Will, Ashton, anything for you to plug? I know we've got some TIFF reviews coming up. What's what's up with your in your world these days? Yeah, I mean, other than that, just my general cinema blend stuff. So I'm just vibing, I guess. Just doing my thing. Just vibing. I mean, same yeah. here. Yeah, I don't got anything coming up. I'm just hanging out, doing my thing. Uh, but hopefully next week we'll have more stuff to talk about. Uh, until then, don't forget to connect with us on our social media networks, all the stuff's in the show notes, everything we talked about. And if you would like to support us uh, non-financially, please consider leaving us a review rating on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. It super helps us out. And we'll see you all next week from the Internet California. I am John Agroni. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the Internet Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.